I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, Finding Yourself in Life's Little Moments. Hi, dear listener. I want to begin by just saying greetings, and I hope that this finds you very well. I hope that this finds your loved ones very well. It's a very difficult, challenging, unprecedented time, and I feel that if there's anything that I could offer, perhaps it could be solace in the form of some of the music that you hear, and also a glimmer of hope. Because I feel, you see, that we're really given now an opportunity to reset, to restart, to reconsider, to review all these words that start with re, which means to go back over something and in this context a global pandemic the likes of which none of us in any of our lifetimes you know have seen we're given I think this space amidst the challenges we're given space to begin to think about consider observe ponder, contemplate what a world coming out of this can be like and I feel like, you know dear listener, I feel like there are glimmers of what a new world can be right in our midst and in this podcast I'm going to focus on a glimmer something that I see around me And that has to do with children. So since the lockdown, since the restrictions that have been put into place, I live here in Sydney, Australia. I'm blessed to live in a beautiful place near the ocean where we're all able to get out to exercise or moved on, you know, for any other reason. There's no congregating at this point. I'm making this podcast on May 7th, 2020. But there are expanses of space, the sand, the beach, the ocean, the promenade, the borders, the beach. Here people can walk and swim in the the beautiful waters. As long as you're out there exercising, you can do it. At this moment, the restrictions haven't been lifted yet. I hear that there may be some lifting of those in the next week or two, but I don't know yet. But one of the things that I observed, dear listener, and again, that I put this into the context of where we're going, you see, there's a lot that's consuming us now, a 
that is taking our attention. I think that the news offers some important information, but I also think that there is something about observing what's actually around us, what's in our midst. And here you see something that I see that's in my midst, our children. So I offer this in the light of how going forward, moving ahead, taking stock of what we are all experiencing, of the realities that preceded this pandemic, I think that's something we don't actually necessarily consider so much, you know. Um, there's been a lot of suffering over the course of human life, and there's suffering now, and it's becoming highlighted in very particular ways because of this unprecedented global situation. And once again, I hope that this finds you well. I hope that this finds those that are closest to you. I hope this finds anyone who's listening very well indeed. But I offer this, you see, because if something really positive comes out of this, if we use this experience to reset ourselves, then all shall not be in vain. And so, as I mentioned in this podcast, I'm going to focus on children because I see a lot of them these days. I'm not entirely sure what constitutes the online learning that they're doing at home. I hear various stories from parents whom I encounter. I don't have children coming now to, to learn in my home, piano as they had been. The schools are not yet open, although I think there might be one day a week where kids are you know, scheduled to go one day a week. And each day there are different children that go to school. I'm not quite sure. I think it varies from school to school here in Australia, in my state at this moment, but I, I'm not entirely sure. However, I am sure that the children of many different ages are given an opportunity now, are out there, playing and they're allowed to do that with some you know restrictions as to children playing together and so on like that but parents will bring their children out onto the beach into the water to play and that I guess constitutes enough of what we call exercise to be allowed. So I see these children now out. And the image that comes to my mind as I'm thinking about the children that I see, something 
happening thousands of miles away from here in a very different place, India, where likewise, however, there is also lockdown for something like 1.3 billion people, unprecedented. And what's happening? Because there's so little outdoor human activity and traffic and noise, is that in the city of Mumbai, which used to be called Bombay, the flamingos are alighting there in vast numbers. Apparently they do come on their migration through that area, but the numbers of them now is something like no one's ever seen before. Like 150,000 flamingos are enjoying the wetlands in that area. Their pink color covering almost like a blanket of pink, the expanse of water, waters near Mumbai. So I think of the flamingos that are enjoying themselves in India, and I think about the children that are enjoying themselves here. And I watch them. And I have to tell you, dear listener, that if you ever watch children play, it's better than anything you could ever see on TV. When children play, as I've seen them do, little brothers or sisters, little families on the beach. As the children, say four or five years old, or three, are out there with little shovels and pails and buckets, building something in the sand, working together, having to figure out what they're going to make, how they're going to make it, how they're going to collaborate with each other or not. Everything you see in that inventiveness and play, we call it play, contains a whole world. It contains so many of the, quote, skills the children are scheduled to learn in school. It contains so many of the opportunities for these children to expand their senses of self, their cognitive abilities, their creative abilities, their tactile experience. You can imagine of the sand, of the water. I was walking on the beach doing my exercise and there was a little child, maybe three or four, and it was playing at the edge of the water where the water was coming up in these beautiful sort of frothy, scalloped edges. And it was there walking with its tiny feet along that edge, its mother close by, and it found something. It found a remnant of some kind of sea creature. And it picked it up, bent down low and picked up this little remnant, 
This little boy was a little boy. He bent down low and picked this up and looked at it very carefully, very closely. He held that little shell, I think it was a part of the shell, in his hand and moved it over his fingers, feeling the uneven surface of that shell, imagining what kind of creature might have been associated with that shell. He found it at the edge of the sea. He found it squatting down, squatting down on the sand, picking it up, and then looking over the vastness of the ocean. You see, he was there playing and walking and discovering and imagining and learning in the very place where the sea creature that inhabited that shell had lived. His classroom was the ocean and his imagination could be carried and buoyed by the place itself. Now I have to tell you, dear listener, that I have a particular passion about education. It started when I was very young because I happened to be brought up by two people who were both educators, my mom and my dad. And they were both very unorthodox educators. They both had, you know, a very progressive, to say the least, view on what education, quote unquote, should be. And my dad told me at some point, he said, you know, our educational system is based actually on an industrial model that comes out of Prussia, Europe, the early 19th century, associated with a man named Horace Mann. Here, when education was just getting started in the United States, that is, I don't know if it was then exactly compulsory, but this model of education came in, and my dad explained this to me years ago. But you know, dear listener, if you want, Google it. I just did because I wanted to learn more about what my dad had told me all these years ago because I was a little bit incredulous, like how could the educational system that I went through, you know, be modeled on, you know, a system that came out of Prussia that was basically designed to prepare children for the military, for working in industry, there was a sense in all of that of a kind of, you know, tiered system, achievement, um, grading, all the things that we think about as part and parcel of our educational system today came out of that model. So much of it. And 
my dad was telling me this way back, saying, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> because children are not uniform. They're not created uniformly. They don't all learn in the same way. They have different abilities, capacities, talents, gifts, personalities, you name it. But they're slotted into the system, you see. Now, I'm not saying that it's wholly bad because there are aspects of structure that children need as they're growing and developing and learning. Structure is good. However, this whole model of education was based on a system where structure was the point. And if a, ch if a child rebelled against that, you see, that structure, then they were labeled happens to this day, continues to happen, right? We don't question the structure, we question the child. Now, I can say that in my teaching, because I've been a teacher now for almost 40 years of music, that I've pretty much only worked one-on-one -on -one with my students, and that's given me an enormous advantage because I teach to the child's personality, capacities, creative abilities and qualities. Every child is different. And the music that a person creates, and now I'm gonna say of any age, is like a thumbprint. The music that a person creates, and I give a person, child, student, adult, an opportunity to create their own improvised music sitting in duet with me, you see? So I can hear what it is, who it is, who it is that's sitting next to me, what it is that is their essential nature that's their unique musical thumbprint. Now, that would be very hard for me to do in a classroom of 30 kids. So it's not a teacher's fault. I'm gonna say this straight out. They're incredible teachers. They're working at a disadvantage because it is almost impossible, given the situation in education, to actually make the most in a teacher's relationship with their students, each student, to make the most of the creative potential that lies, you see, in that teaching relationship. I don't know how I would do it, you know, if I had to teach 30 kids at one time, all sitting, all being graded, you know, all being measured against the same standard You see, it's just, it's impossible. 
to really get to the depth of who a child really is. A student really is. And to give that person the context, the framework, the opportunity to begin to discover who they truly are through, in my case, you know, the music that I'm giving students an opportunity to make. Now, like I said, I was blessed to have these two very unorthodox, very progressive, one might almost say radical parents. My dad taught for over 50 years in the New York City school system. He was a professor of education. He taught teachers how to teach. Okay, so he was working at a college, a university in New York City, and he was working with teachers in training. And he would go and observe those teachers in inner city New York City schools. He would observe the student teachers and try to help them to help them to appreciate the students who were in their classrooms. So my dad had a lot of stories. He told me a lot of stories. And those stories have really stayed with me. They've shaped who I am. They've shaped who I've become. They've shaped what I understand education to be. So I'll give you one example. My dad was working with teachers in a school for students with various kinds of disabilities. It was perhaps a residence, I'm not entirely sure. It was quite a lot of years ago. But these students had various sorts of disabilities, quote-unquote disabilities, I don't like the term. You know, I think it's a product of the very system that I was describing to you. Someone with disabilities, somebody who can't make it in a system which is designed to create... Uh, anyway, I think you get my point. <laughs> so it's really something. So anyway, he was, he was in this, you know, working with people in training in this residence or school for students who had quote-unquote disabilities. What does that mean? Probably quote-unquote autism, etc. You know, other kinds of quote-unquote cognitive, quote-unquote handicaps, etc. It's all, these are all fabrications, I think, you know, of their product, let's say anyway, of our... Uh, our Prussian system, the system that came out of a highly structured, regimented um, approach. So anyway, this was quite a few years ago in New York City, and he told me the story. He told me how one of these kids got out. He got out of the school. They weren't allowed to get out because they were quote-unquote handicapped in some quote-unquote way. But this kid got out. Boy, maybe he was 11 or 12, something like that. He got out. The place was probably locked, you know, probably also, you know, for some safety, but still. 
That's so kids couldn't quote-unquote escape. Anyway, the kid got out. And he goes out onto the street in New York City. I think it was in Brooklyn. He goes out onto the street and he hails a taxi cab. He hails a cab. A cab pulls over and he gets into the cab. And he proceeds to direct the cab driver to take him all around New York City. This is a boy who had seen very little of his own environment. He got in this cab and he asked the driver, take him all over the place. And the driver took him from Brooklyn into Lower Manhattan, past the Empire State Building, up to Central Park, through the park, over to the East River, back over to the Hudson River, because Manhattan is bordered by two rivers, as some people might know, up to Columbia University, you know, where it's it's very beautiful up there, and it's sort of places you can overlook, have, have nice views, Columbia Heights, back down to Lower Manhattan, past the Empire State Building, over the Brooklyn Bridge, <laughs> back into Brooklyn, and back to that school. Meanwhile, of course, everybody was panicked because they couldn't find this kid, okay? He was going on a journey. He went on a journey. He came back to the school, owing the cab driver $150 in cab fares. Back then, it would have been more now. And he was chastised, punished, you name it, you know. All hell was let loose because he did the wrong thing. But my dad was working in that school with those teachers and staff. And he said to them, he said, who out of all of you would not have loved to do what that boy did? Can you see how wonderful it was that that boy gave himself the opportunity, had it in him to get out, to express his spirit of independence, his curiosity, his spirit of discovery, and get in that cab and learn about the place he lived in, see all those things that he'd heard of but never seen before. He should be rewarded. He should be rewarded for doing what he did because it was incredible. It was fantastic. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. And any of us would have loved to have been in that cab with him. So, you see, dear listener, this was one of my parents, my dad. Bless his heart. 
I walk on that sand today, dear listener, and there are times when I cry because I miss him. I loved him a lot, a lot, a lot. And the story that I just told you was just one of the many reasons why. An example of what he gave me so I could appreciate my students. It's why that it's why I teach the way I do. You know, that spirit of discovery is so precious. So I walk on the sand sometimes and I, you know, I cry. I think of my dad. When I see those children though, and I see their play. I said to that mom who was with her little son who was discovering the shell, the little sea creature remnant. I said, that's as good as any school. She said to me, it's better. It's better. So in this time when so many of us are so restricted. I can tell you that in my neck of the woods, children are, in many ways, given the opportunity to become closer to who they are because they're given the opportunity to become closer to the world When those children are out there on that sand, the world, the sand, the ocean is their classroom. It's their classroom. It's like the vast cityscapes of New York were for that little boy who escaped and took it upon himself to get in a cab and find out what was out there. So I say all this, dear listener, you see, because with everything kind of being, you know, locked down, when the children are allowed to kind of become who they actually are, when they're allowed some precious opportunity, and I live in this blessed place where they can get out, you know, I see them. I would call it organic education, organic learning. You know, organic learning. There's some methodologies, some types of schools that I think approach this. You know, Montessori, Steiner. You know, there's some educational philosophies that have given rise to schools, private schools, individual, independent schools that I think give kids somewhat different of an experience. But I can say now that I see more kids out there than I've ever seen before. And they look free. There's a kind of freedom in them. I think they must think, oh my gosh, (laughs) what just happened? (laughs) 
you know, we can sort of make as as adults, we can kind of make sense of what's going on in a, in a way. But I mean, for children, it's like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Like the flamingos in Mumbai, they're flourishing. In many ways, they're flourishing. They're flourishing. So if we move forward, dear listener, out of this whole thing into some kind of new future, I offer this simply from my observation and from what I've been blessed to have absorbed from both my parents, my mom also. She worked with kids with quote-unquote learning, quote-unquote disabilities, She did incredible things. She was completely, worked completely out of the box. You know, private practice with kids. Really appreciated what a child had to offer and supported them in a way that changed their life. She changed kids' lives. There's no question about it. I can say that. So, you know, my particular destiny was to be born into a family where both my parents had this kind of approach. In fact, I googled my mom's name recently and found a letter to the editor that she had written in 1988. 1988, that's 32 years ago. Letter to the editor they published in the New York Times. And the title of the letter was Ease Up on Kids. 32 years ago she was writing about this. She said, you know, when a child is five and six and seven, she said, If you load them down with homework, you know, you're going to be creating a a problem. Kids aren't meant to be loaded down with homework when they're five and six and seven. I see kids, you know, when they go to school here, I see kids with backpacks that are bigger than they are. You know, so my mom was writing about this 32 years ago, and it's gotten worse, right? More pressure, you know, more pressure, more expectation, less play. My dad always talked about the importance of play for kids. Play, he said, is essential for the developmental process, children. So... That's what I wanted to share with you, dear listener, because if we can take stock of what's happening for kids when they're allowed, even in some small way, to be who they are, to be reconnected to the natural, organic learning process inside of them, all right, and to the world at large, in whatever way, through play, You see, this online thing, it's my personal opinion. It's not all it's cracked up to be. You know, it's just not. A child is multifaceted, multidimensional, multirelational in his or her nature. And the world is what can meet that child in that multidimensionality. Like that little child you know, at the edge of the water, finding that little shell piece and then looking at it in all its detail. It having come, that little shell from the place where it lived (laughs) with its sea creature. 
So I can say that I see children are flourishing. There's a life. Just like those flamingos in Mumbai flourishing. As everything else becomes restricted, there are things that are beginning to flourish in this world, dear listener. And one of those things is children. In certain places where they can, and if we let them and if we can recognize it, we can begin to build a different kind of life in them coming out of this. We can learn from them. We can learn from them. Instead of some top-down, imposed system onto them. We can learn how learning works. We can learn how learning works. We can learn how curiosity works. We can ask more questions than we answer. And we can ask them with the children and watch. They can become our classroom. So with that, dear listener, I'm going to sign off. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about this because I've seen, I've seen the bit of the glimmers of the fruits of this kind of thing. And I'll tell you something, it's beautiful. Now we're going to need, we're going to need children who are going to grow up into adults who are going to be able to live in this world in a completely different way so this world can become a completely different world. Because what we don't talk about is how much suffering there was before this pandemic. That's what we can rectify, reset, you know, change now. We can do something about it can be different, filled with vision and hope and wonder, which is our human birthright. It's our human birthright. So with that, dear listener, thank you so much for being there. I send heartfelt wishes from this side of the world and my hope that you're okay. Take good care of yourselves, okay? Bless you now and always. Now and always.